0: Hello, everyone um, ladies and gentlemen welcome to the National Library of Australia my name is Matthew Jones and I'm a curator in the exhibitions branch here at the library um, and thank you for coming out on such a wet and uh, not so pleasant afternoon but I think that kind of shows how much how keen we all are to hear Sasha and Virginia today and talk and listen to them talk about gill uh, as we begin I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call home. So, today we're going to listen to Virginia Hausiger AM and Sasha Grishan AM, the curator of the exhibition ST Gill, uh, I should say, pardon me, Australian Sketchbook, Colonial Life and the Art of ST Gill. And they'll be in con- conversation today talking about that exhibition and about the life of Gill. Australian sketchbook colonial life and the art of S.T. Gill is the first comprehensive retrospective of the life and art of the S.T. Gill. It tells the everyday stories of colonial Victoria through the vibrant imagery of a man who was once Australia's most popular artist and then suffered decades um, out of view. Prospectors, Aboriginal Australians, larrikins and swagmen, a range of classic Australian characters and types are depicted in Gill's work. This retrospective Uh, of Gill's work showcases more than 200 paintings, drawings, watercolours and prints and enables us to glimpse life on the goldfields and in the bush, cities and towns of 19th century Australia. The National Library has been extremely fortunate to form a partnership with the State Library Victoria to develop two exhibitions on two significant 19th century artists S.G. Gill and William Strutt. Um, The William Strutt exhibition, uh, Heroes and Villains, was here at The National Library last year and is now at the State Library of Victoria this year and of course Australian Sketchbook was at the State Library of Victoria last year and now we're very fortunate to have it here at the National Library. By working together we've been able to combine two great collections and produce two exhibitions that have made an important contribution to Australian art history. I thank our colleagues at the State Library of Victoria for sharing with us their collections, expertise and passion for Australian art and history. Of course a retrospective such as this is as much a life's work for the curator Sasha Grishan, as it is a reflection of the life's work of the artist and it's a great pleasure to acknowledge the role that Sasha played in bringing this exhibition to fruition Sasha founded the fine art program at the, the fine art program at the Australian National University in 1977 and now works internationally as an art historian art critic and curator and as well as being the curator of the exhibition he was also the author of the exhibition's companion publication ST Gill and his audiences which is on sale in the bookshop. Virginia Hausiger is the face of ABC TV news in Canberra. She is an award-winning journalist, writer and commentator whose extensive media career spans more than 25 years. Today our speakers in conversation will shed light on the life on the life and art of colonial artist ST Gill. And now I'd like you to please join me in welcoming, welcoming them to the stage. Thank you very much.
1: Well, good afternoon. It's, um, it's a delight to see so many of you out on this wet Canberra day. Very Canberra day. I've just come back from uh, three weeks in the sun and um, Canberra's raining <laughs> and it's cold, but lovely. What a pleasure and delight it is for me, I've got to say, and this is something that I have um, raced back for, to have the opportunity to sit here in conversation with Sasha. Professor Sasha Gresham is uh, by far one of Australia's or Australia's greatest leading art historian and scholar, and it is an absolute honour and privilege to be given this opportunity. So thank you very much, Sasha, for agreeing to do this event.
2: Virginia, after such an introduction, if I say anything, it's going to be an anti-climax. <laughs>
1: <laughs> not at all, Thanks. not at all. Now, we have, we have just under an hour to talk. I will take uh, 10 minutes or so of questions at the end, so if you've got questions, store them up, and um, this is a wonderful, well, as I say, opportunity to, to um, ask Sasha directly yourself what it is you'd like to know about St Gill or wider issues. I, uh, I'm going to start by saying, though, that you know how often in these conversation sessions you find the interviewer, i.e. me, um, interrupts an awful lot and likes to show off what they know about the issue? I just want to let you know that's not going to happen today <laughs> because Obviously. I don't know much <laughs> about St. Gill at all. And, in fact, uh, I'm appalled to say, because I did do a, a fine arts degree at Melbourne Uni many, many moons ago, um, he's never been on my radar until recent years uh, because of you. Which brings me to my first question, Sasha. Why? Why, S.T. Gill, you have devoted many, many years and a huge amount of effort to uh, making sure that he stays in Australian memory. Why?
2: Listen, so I can't really know how to answer that Um, but as this is going towards the end of the exhibition and I'll promise something when this exhibition finishes I've been working on a very very large Gill database, a catalogue resume that's going to go live online and after that I will divorce (laughs) Gill because he has certainly lasted longer than most marriages. (laughs) Um,
1: I don't believe you. I I, I, I don't believe you will divorce him, because I know, and you have actually written this yourself, you have had a fascination with ST Gill since the age of six, since you were a child. Tell us that little story about what first brought him to your attention. Well,
2: Virginia's referring to... I thought you said you weren't going to interrupt.
1: (laughs) I just changed my mind. (laughs)
2: No. Um, When I was a very small child, I was born in Melbourne, and my father and I were passing the GPO, and he said to me, as a sort of throwaway line, there's some Australia's greatest colonial artist died on the steps in poverty. Don't follow a career in art.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That worked well, didn't
2: Uh, it? Obviously, I, I... Listen to my father's words. And anyway, that bugged me. There's, there's this contradiction. Greatest artist died in poverty. And to say that I worked on Gill ever since would be not true. But he's always been sort of at the back of my psyche. And then as I went through the schooling system in Melbourne, uh, he cropped up everywhere. You couldn't pick up a book on Australian history without having a few of those funny little Gill uh, drawings of the gold fields and then... Um, bank calendars came out from the National Bank Gill was everywhere um, Gill seemed to surround us but whenever I asked questions like um, what do we know about him and people say oh he's a colonial artist about whom no very little is known his personal life, his biography is unknown I thought oh okay um, and then probably about 20 something years ago when I was already in Canberra I thought to myself, well, let's find out what we do know about Gill, and being sort of a a trained art historian, I thought, well, the best thing to do is to really get together all of Gill's work, bit by bit, and look at it. Because up till now, virtually everyone in this audience can bring to mind about 30, 40 images by Gill.
1: Without necessarily even knowing without that they are necessarily
2: that knowing girl. their gills uh, and just just encounters in history books, and I thought myself, well, is that all he's done? And so, bit by bit, I started to assemble, with aid with assistance, of course, what we refer to as a catalogue raisonné. Uh, it currently stands just shy of three thousand works.
1: So, he's probably one of Australia's most prolific artists.
2: Uh, Yes, he was, but uh, it was not unusual for artists who worked in democratic mediums, like uh, printmaking, watercolours, um, to have work in their thousands. I mean, Crookshanks' catalogue résonne runs to about 7,000. Andre Demiers is to about over Mm 8,000. So, I mean, these people really worked hard. I mean, Gill could easily do... and this is separate images. I'm not talking about uh, duplicate prints. So, in the process of work, I got to know much more about Gill. and the more I, I sort of learnt about him, the more interested I became in him. Because I suddenly realised that uh, the gold fields were just one small aspect of his overall oeuvre. And he was, he was really the social conscience of 19th century Australian society. Well,
1: Let's talk a little bit about that because that's what I first gleaned when I came across your um, writing about him. And I was curious because I've been dismissive of him thinking he's a bit of a cartoonist, basically. Uh, And I don't particularly like the style of work until I've started to look a little bit closer and picked up on what you've said. But let's just unpack it by going back to when he first came to Australia. He's 21 years old, he arrives in South Australia and he immediately um, announces, or within a couple of months gets rooms and announces that he's an artist with open rooms and invites people to come and purchase his work. Yes. Tell us about what happened from there.
2: Well, essentially, Gill was born in England. He was born in Somerset uh, in 1818. Uh, his parents, uh, his father was a Baptist minister. He ran a, um, a school for gifted boys. His mother ran a school for gifted ladies. So Gill goes through this home schooling system Then he goes into the William Seabrook Academy. Uh, Then he works in London. He works in a framing shop. So by the time he arrives in Australia, as Virginia said, just before Christmas in 1839, he's 21 years old. Two of his siblings in England had died of smallpox. And the decision was made by the family to uproot and come to the newly established colony of South Australia, which had only been going for about a year at that Mm -hmm. stage. I think he arrived as an Englishman with all the sort of prejudices mm. of an early 19th century Englishman and um, an occupier, colonial character. And he immediately advertises that I'll make likenesses of people, of horses and dogs, <laughs> of estates, local scenery. Um, and I think Gill, at that stage starts to immediately... Um, Look around him. And things like the calendar uh, sequel that we have, one of the treasures of the National Library here in Canberra from the Rex Nancor collection, Um, the labours of the months, the seasons, all of those things are done by Gill in the first two or three years in Australia. Fascinating material. Um, Gill also participates as an unpaid extra Mm. uh, on a journey of exploration. With a a Charles Sturt. And, well, no, he, he doesn't actually go on the Sturt one. He goes on the John Horrocks expedition in 1846. Now, now why
1: would he have agreed to go on with that team as, as an unpaid artist? Well,
2: I think two things. Firstly, um, John Horrocks was the same age as him. They both arrived in 39. They knew one another. They're in the, it's a small community. And the other thing is to capture the imagination, to see things that no white man has seen before.
1: Now, uh, but as you say, he arrived as an Englishman and I, I recall you even saying that he was part of the British uh, British uh, propaganda yes. um, circle, uh, yeah. a propagandist. Um, was he going to really see for himself because he realised Australia was not what the English understood it to be?
2: Well, I think we have his diaries from, from the Horrocks expedition where he's recording what he's seeing and he's... Obviously, as a young bloke, relating to what he knows. I -hmm. saw this and this is different from this. Mm -hmm. I saw this and so on. But the the expedition, I think, opened his eyes a little bit because he started to see indigenous people. Um, The expedition was interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, Firstly, it was the first expedition in Australia where they actually used a camel Mm -hmm. to explore the outback.
1: An imported camel, too. An (laughs)
2: imported camel. Uh, And uh, as you've asked, the camel's name was Harry. Thank you for that. (laughs) Um, And it's unique as far as I'm aware. It's because it was an expedition where actually the camel shot the explorer.
1: How did that happen?
2: Well, basically, camels won, explorers yet to score. Um, (laughs) John Horrocks was a typical explorer, so any time he saw anything of interest, he would just shoot it and bag it. Yeah, just just a... (laughs) Um, a c- cultivated, cultured attitude to it. And um, he, <laughs> saw a, he saw a rather handsome-looking bird, sounds by the description like a parrot, uh, decided to load his shotgun lean against Harry the camel. The camel jerked, and the shotgun went up in his face. Um, so, a few days later, the explorer was dead. And, and camel shot his, one. His, his, Yes, absolutely. And his dying wish was, shoot bloody Harry. <laughs> So so it wasn't a happy story. But um, what what we're witnessing in Gill is this sort of an awareness of another Australian. We know that while he was in South Australia, he was there for 12 years, he lived with Indigenous people. He recorded the way they hunted, the way they fished. Uh, These are all sort of... The very first part of the exhibition is really Gill and Indigenous Australians.
1: So was he one of the first Australian artists to actually yes. do
2: this? Gill, Gil, when you get to know him... Um, as, sorry, he sounds awfully American, but he's the first in so many fields. Mm. And it's a bit strange. And, uh, but, and his attitude towards
1: Indigenous people seemed to have changed rather, it changes. rather quickly. It, change, it
2: changes rather dramatically, because very early in the piece, uh, he wasn't exactly referring to them as savages, but uh, there's confrontation. was he, Horrocks, and the expedition... Holding guns, uh, being confronted by these people. But bit by bit, he started to know these people and he did a career ending move. He took the side of the indigenous people. And he came out with these ridiculous statements that there's a lot we can learn from these people and graphically convey that in his art. Mm. And we can move on to speak about that in a moment. So uh, I think what happens to Gill, originally he arrives as a sort of um, Englishman, a person who is very, very um, adamant about the virtue of the uh, Victorian civilization. He does these propaganda images of this beautiful uh, city of Adelaide, trying to entice people to emigrate here and live here. And Within about 10 years, something happens. He changes. He swaps allegiances. He starts to question English values. And I think that's sort of this fascinating growth and change in SDG.
1: So how did that change in him affect his income and his sponsorship?
2: Well, I think Gil was both a very lucky person and a very unlucky person. Uh, His income in South Australia by the 1850s, early 1850s, started to dip dramatically. He also had some affliction on his hand and he couldn't work for a few months. He was insolvent. But then, of course, in 1852, gold was discovered in Victoria and together with the rest of the male population of South Australia, Mm -hmm. Gill went to the New Jerusalem of the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, But uh, he
1: raced over uh, with the idea of of gold digging, literally, or he saw it as an opportunity to experience something new.
2: Well, Virginia, I mean, I can't answer that, but I'm fairly convinced that Gill did not dig for gold. I mean, there's a lot of myths about him going over with his brother. He didn't. They went separately. Um, There's no evidence that Gill actually uh, dug for gold. We know that he arrived about May of 1852 and immediately started to produce uh, sketches and, most importantly, lithographs. Between August and October of 1852, Gill produces 48 fantastically popular lithographs, black and white ones, uh, called Victoria Diggings and Diggers as They Are by SDG. 1852.
1: Were these commissioned pieces? Who's no, he doing them no. for?
2: No. He was freelancing. Uh, he was working with a publisher, a printer publisher, and so this will sell. There was enormous amount of interest in it. People wanted to send it back to, to England, mm. back to America, and all the other places where miners are coming from. Uh, so, really, uh, Vic- I mean, think of Victoria in 52, population or about 77,000, by 54, population quarter of a million. So it's a huge expansion. Uh, information on Victoria is hard to come by. And uh, Gil just happened to be very, very lucky that at that moment he moved into that gap. And so I can argue that uh, in those four years that he initially spent in Victoria, from 52 to 56, uh, he really became the most highest profile artist working in Australia.
1: Tell us a little bit about what he was depicting, though, on the gold fields, because the, the, the s- not only the style, but the uh, subject matter
2: changed, didn't it? Unfortunately, this is his second career-ending move. Gill depicted what one could refer to as the dark side of the gold rushes. He started to speak about themes like racism, environmental destruction, attitudes to women, and so on. Now, I realise that today, in 2016, for an audience, a sophisticated audience like this, it's impossible to imagine. But back in the 1850s, there were these narrow-minded, xenophobic racists, (laughs) politicians who were whipping up in the media hysteria about the arrival, and their words, not mine, of the boat people.
1: Imagine that. It's yeah. very I mean, hard if, to imagine. I, mean, I really have to stretch my but, but imagination. this is the
2: situation that Gill found himself in, that they were coming here to do three things, to steal our gold, our jobs, and destroy our values. And Gil made a huge mistake he started to show these really sympathetic images of Chinese miners.
1: Now, when you say that was a mistake, though, again, I go back to the issue of income and commissioning. Yeah. If he was working uh, uh, freelance with yes. a publisher, but uh, freelance, um, did he not realise then that this wasn't going, this material was not going to have a buyer? Who's going to buy it if it's actually criticising the very society he's trying to sell into?
2: Well, the family records always suggest that Gill was a really, really poor business person. Mm. Uh, and everything seems to sort of support this. Um, But, I mean, people were interested. I mean, I know everyone here is fascinated with this idea, what did a Chinese takeaway restaurant look like in 1855? (laughs) Go to the exhibition, you'll see it. John Alou's Chinese restaurant, Main Street, Ballarat, 1855, outside and inside. So, yes, I mean, he was sort of basic answering this quest for um, knowledge, mm-hmm. information, uh, but he was starting to increasingly add um, questioning about it. I mean, we all know that there were women on the Victorian golf fields, but you don't see them in art. Mm. You do in Gill, and that's interesting. I mean, Gill is actually, and again, I mean, Virginia and I were speaking about that a few minutes ago, and she said, "Well, there's not that many of them." Well, actually, when you start looking at them. Yeah, they, they start to appear... You do
1: have to look hard, but, uh, yeah. and, and this is the problem. Women are erased mostly from Australian yeah. history. Yeah. But, the, the, yes, I, but, I, I mean, take listen, your point I mean, they I are y- there. Y-
2: you look at a scene like um, The Coffee Tent, or Sly Grog mm-hmm. Tent, whichever uh, title you like. Um, the person who's actually selling the Sly Grog <coughs> is a woman. A big, tall mountain of a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, who's, and, and I know who she is now. I've tracked her down. Her name is Mrs Bunting. Mrs Bunting was a tall woman. She'd been fined several times of rather large sums between 20 pounds and 50 pounds for selling sly grog, but she basically said, oh, to hell with it, I'm making too much money to bother with. And I came across recently a letter about her, which I adore. Um, She used to ride bareback on horses with a couple of pistols tucked (laughs) around her waist, and when bushrangers saw her coming, they would gallop in the opposite direction. (laughs) What a woman!
1: <laughs> I would have loved to have seen him do a, a portrait uh, of her. Rather, I mean, I kno- know yeah. the piece you mean, and it, 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 she's very prominent in it, but she's at the back of the
2: picture. Uh, yes, but she's she's the focal point. Mm-hmm. And Gill, I think, also works on this principle that if you want to say something really, really important, you don't have to shout. Mm-hmm. You can actually put it in. You know, like like you, you can think of a, a great painter like, like Bruegel. Think mm-hmm. of the you know in, in our art historical traditions of Icarus. Mm-hmm. You don't mm-hmm. actually see Icarus. But when you look there, okay, there's a couple of feet sticking up out (laughs) of the sea. And uh, with a lot of gill, I think, and and that's what I love about him, uh, if there's anything, and that's because there's several levels of it. You've got this sort of Andy Warhol wow factor. You look and say, wow. Uh, and then okay? And then you look into it, and there's another level of meaning, and then you look further into it, and there's another level of meaning. And this sort of unpeeling uh, of imagery, um, whether whether it... uh, you, you may see, well, okay, it's Little Bendigo Creek. That's fine. But it actually shows all the trees cut down. He shows the waterways totally polluted. Um, he's making these comments in a rather subtle way. Now, it could be, I don't know, that he was taking into account those some things you couldn't say too publicly. Mm-hmm. Uh, people wouldn't buy them. Um, but the interesting thing is that um, the images had a life in several different forms. Yes, they appear as those 48 little lithographs, but they're also frequently reproduced on letterhead paper. Letterhead papers, they before postcards appeared, and essentially it was sort of, if you think of an A4 sheet folded four times, the image would appear on the top of it, and then uh, you'd have these other sides of paper to write on it. Now, one of the difficulties of being sort of an academic working in art history... Sometimes you have to go to hardship positions like the Bodleian in Oxford um, w- who happen to have quite a good collection of letters from the gold fields written on gill letterhead paper. Mm. And the interesting thing is that people are actually writing in to say, yes, this is exactly how it is. Mm. You know, Just very much like say you and I may pick up, a, not that you use postcards nowadays, but if you did use postcards, <laughs> Let's say the Leaning Tower of Pisa, or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been here. This is what I've seen. Mm-hmm. But P- the, in it's testimony to being there, seeing these things. So in those sort of uh, lithographs and the accompanying drawings that Gill creates in the early 1850s, uh, he's starting to really uh, make all of these points... Uh, about what's really happening, the actuality, the psychology, the experience of the gold fields. And he doesn't have a single image of people shouting El Dorado Mm. or standing with these huge nuggets Mm. that you Mm. find in photographs of the time. But none of that's so important as this following factor. That's my big claim. I think that Gill, in the early 50s, creates in art a new species of Homo sapiens, the Aussie digger. Mm. Gives it visual expression and calls it Aussie digger as Mm. well. This, mind you, this is a long time before Gallipoli. And that's quite important to remember that as well. And these people are tough. They're resilient. They're true to their mates. They're resourceful. And there were blokes just like that as well. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well said. I was going to say, though, and of course they are mostly men, in fact... Uh, both, both. I, well, I, I know, he, yes, as we've discussed, he has yep. included some women. But, but when you talk about him um, defining the Australian colonial character, I guess that's something I have felt uncomfortable with when I first came across him, because women are so absent from the bigger picture of the Australian colonial scene, and that's reflected in, in this work.
2: Yes. Well, first, firstly, I have to say you're absolutely correct, but... The but is uh, he includes more wi- women than any other colonial artist. But yes, I think it's n- when, if I'm going to say it's equal share, no, it's not. Um, and of course, when I'm speaking about the colonial factor um, or character, yes, it's, it's a relative one. It's this mythology of uh, the rural character. I mean, I think the, as far as I can understand the idea of what it is to be an Australian, it really s- arises probably in the 1830s and 40s in rural Australia. And the melting pot of the gold rushes brings it all together, makes it urban, makes it national. Mm. Now, Gill is really the first bloke who actually comes on board and gives it visual expression. Mm. And I think that's quite interesting, quite exciting. And it's really from the 50s that we start having these rather strong uh, images of identity of Australia appearing in Gill. And that surprised me when I was working on it because I didn't actually set out with an agenda. I was looking at the work and the work was uh, telling me these stories.
1: Did that... Uh, th- the fact that he was th- the first to do that and, and doing it in such a powerful way, did that affect his own fame or increase his fame?
2: Yes and no. I mean, there were people who saw it. Uh, Marcus Clarke, for example. Uh, even Redmond Barry. And he got some commissions from that. Other people... Um, basically felt he was banging on about something that perhaps they didn't want to know about. Uh, Melbourne society was changing. Once people made money, they didn't really want uh, discussed too publicly where the money came from. Um, Gill was going along swimmingly in Melbourne when in 1856, catastrophe struck. She was raven-haired. Mm-hmm. Strikingly attractive. And on the twentieth of May, eighteen fifty-six, Gill and Elizabeth eloped.
1: With his other wife still in South Australia. Uh,
2: we assume he had a wife, and we assume she was still in South Australia. And then he committed the great sin of crossing the Murray. <laughs> he went north.
1: Oh, that's where he got it all wrong. i from Melbourne.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he settled in the in the centre of sin in Wollumalu in Sydney, in Stanley Street. And so Gill remains in New South Wales with Elizabeth and uh, we've tracked him down and he's giving lessons, he's making all sorts of scenes, um, probably until the end of 1863, early 1864, when he returns to Melbourne alone. Elizabeth remains uh, in Woolloomooloo. Uh, She's listed in directories. uh, By this stage she calls herself Mrs Gill
1: So we don't know whether they actually married?
2: Uh, Interestingly enough, contemporaries refer to them as being always introduced as Mr and Mrs Gill. Uh, None of the registry records show evidence of a marriage. Could could they be lost? Possibly. Uh, There's no evidence of a divorce either. Mm. So uh, a little bit complicated. Um, I'm not setting out to actually rehabilitate Gill or give him this absolutely sterling character, uh, but... Just, just these factual materials. But Gill again in in um, Sydney uh, depicts a lot of things about Sydney that no one else had, and he becomes increasingly um, questioning about some of our social values.
1: What? What? He's obviously very interested in those who are dispossessed and minorities, and look, we see that on the we we see it with his his. um, coverage of indigenous people, but also on the gold fields with the Chinese people, the might yep. versus right type of work. Yep. Yep. Um, what, what were the key values, though, that he seemed to really focus on in his work, in his body of work?
2: Well, I think egalitarianism. That's a very major one. Um, the idea that essentially this is a new country and you can do something special here mm. that you couldn't do back in England. Uh, Gill is really quite exciting in his thinking. Okay, let's come to the chase and and just call a spade a shovel. Uh, Mm. He was a democratic socialist. Full stop. And there's a wonderful image, for example, many wonderful images in the exhibition, but one uh, made in Sydney, um, which has a strange title, He Who Grumbles But Pays. Mm-hmm. And you've got this really quite obese mm-hmm. gentleman. Mm. Uh, it's the uh, John Bull character, or the uh, pure Merino of New South Wales, that occurs in Gill's other work. You're dressed to the nines, um, and Gill, by the way, has dogs. Gill's dogs are very important in his art, and he uses them always to comment on human behaviour, mm-hmm. very much like Hogarth did. And and so Gill got his dog dressed up in in um, drag, and the goal uh, the The dog has a gilded collar, Mm -hmm. and um, you look at this image, Oh, it's a strange and uncomfortable image. But then he confronted this question, how do you actually depict the invisible urban poor? And you look behind the image, and you see actually this pauper who's transparent. Mm. And you see, and he can't pay. uh, And then there's a mass of urban blacks. And so when you go through a series of images, and I hung a wall of them, um, yeah, it's undeniable. Or the great matrimonial success, Mm. um, a family uh, declaring that they've got the number one prize at the baby show. Again, there's all sorts of commentaries happening in that work. Mm. Um, And I think one of the sort of strengths of Gill is that he was prepared to engage with these very difficult uh, social issues – but he believed it was appropriate to always have a bit of humour tucked away in your back pocket. You don't always have to get up on a soapbox and shout at people saying, this is important, listen to me, but you can also be subversive. People get um, seduced by the bit of uh, eye candy Mm. and then you actually put in the venom and the bite.
1: Was that possibly to a way of uh, still hoping that people would buy his work if he kept his social commentary rather subtle, such that that some buying it may not even (laughs) realise that it's there.
2: I think, yes, I I think that may be one of the strategies that he used. I mean, we know that Gill is having problems um, in selling work, he's teaching, uh, he's got a few backers, he's got a few friends. And mind you, uh, some of the things are of his own accord, he does them wrongly. For example, there was a famous horse race where the finest galloper from New South Wales was put up by the finest galloper from Victoria. The horse race was held in some place called Flemington, Mm. in Melbourne, Um, and Gill for the newspaper rushes out and produces the finishing image where Vino, the um, New South Wales galloper, wins by a short nose ahead of Hawthorne, Alice Hawthorne, the Melbourne galloper. he was taken to court over that, or his newspaper was. Because people said, no, he could never have known the outcome of the race so early in the piece.
1: So how did he get it so right?
2: Um, He guessed, but in the court he had to confess he'd never seen either Vino or Alice (laughs) uh, and made it all up. That didn't do great things for his reputation.
1: It also reminds me, though, of... uh, I think it's a chapter in your your book for this exhibition... um, that that is titled, Was S.T. Gill South Australia's First Photographer? Which brings up the issue of photography. He was almost producing a finish line photo there, wasn't he? Yes,
2: yes. I mean, we know that um, Gill imported a daguerreotype camera into South Australia. Uh, We have some images which could be from that camera uh, and we know he sold it on rather quickly. Because, let's face it, photography is such a limiting medium. Gill just found it too limiting. I mean, if, if, if I take a photograph of you, this is how you looked at one thirtieth of a second exposure. If I draw you, then I can bring in a whole history of observation. Mm-hmm. And so I think Gill dismissed photography as a useful tool, but not good as an end in itself.
1: So, whilst not photography, then th- the other thing that that uh, that r- I think raises is the issue of his social realism in his work, which we've been touching on, um, which albeit very subtle, he was probably one of Australia's first social realist artists, wasn't he? Yes, yes. Or
2: almost yes. journalist. Well photojournalist I, uh, at well some uh, stage. I don't like the word photojournalist. Not that I've got anything against journalists.
1: Um, <laughs> I'm no. pleased to hear that, Sash.
2: <laughs> no, I think I think the whole thing is that. Um, Gill wanted to give a social commentary. And for use of a better term, he was our first painter of modern life. He wanted to sort of show what life was like. And always there was a gloss. There was always a commentary involved in it. And it was just it was fascinating the sort of uh, levels and tiers of meaning that he involves in his work. So when he returns to Melbourne, 1864, um, they produce the um, Australian sketchbook itself, uh, the first lavish chromolithographic Mm. publication. And I think it's in that democratic medium of printmaking that Gill's brings together this whole image of what it is to be an Australian.
1: Can I ask you to explain to us what that, the, the cover shot for that, or the cover image for that with Gil himself with his sketch pad under arm and two Aboriginal guys behind him um, warning him. Well it looks like they're yeah. calling out something. Yeah. What's going on there?
2: Well, I mean, I, I think that's a wonderful... Uh, why I selected as the hero image for the exhibition was because um, it's sort of a summary. It's a self-portrait. Gill is walking through the Australian bush. He pauses, takes his boots off. He's now dipping his feet in the stream, cooling them. He's got his pipe, his bottle, his uh, folio of drawings. And then a c- there's a couple of indigenous blokes around the corner. Um, they're friends. They're in others' work. They're sort of saying something to him and he waves to them. Yeah, yeah, fine. But what they're actually saying to him is there's this black snake about to strike him and bite him in the foot. So he's, he's already putting himself in a slightly ridiculous situation, mm-hmm. while above him, when you look, there's a melodic magpie about to unload on him as well. <laughs> so, and I think that, that's a sort of a humility, uh, this is the frontispiece of the whole thing, that he's not presenting himself uh, as the great artist creator. Because how many self portraits have you seen? And you know, you've got this portrait, porcel- oh, here, or, w- w- with an easel and all that. Yeah. He, he's slightly sort of ridiculing himself. Mm. Presenting himself as an object of ridicule, but
1: also shows great sense of humour too. And there's
2: it? humour about it. Um, but when you actually look at the treatment of the bush itself, it's really quite beautiful.
1: Sasha, in this magnificent exhibition here, one of the things that strikes me is how beautiful some of the landscapes are. Uh, much b- or better seeing in person than in, in reproduction, of course. Um, I personally think that's the richest work, the actual landscapes and also his architecture, mm-hmm. more so than uh, the goldfield stuff and yet the goldfield stuff is what he's known for. What do you think of his landscapes?
2: They're fabulous. I mean, Gill on a good day produced fantastic landscapes, you know, with the Fred Williams blobby trees, the, um, he was a marvellous uh, watercolourist artist. Mm-hmm. Um, he was more at home in the bush than he was in the city. He was more at home in the saddle than he was sitting behind a desk. And so so in in many ways, he had this affinity with the landscape. Yes, there is a rural mythology, and I use that word um, advisedly, that the idea that there's a a truthness to experience, there's a truthness of life in the bush and all these things are marvellous, and Gill is sort of playing on this. But I think also what's important is that he's now celebrating new values, of what it is, what, what's so special about the Australian bush. I mean, He's the first person who actually um, takes issue with our gum trees, um, the strangeness of our light, all of these the scribbly barks. Mm. I mean, Gill's also sort of looking around these things and depicting them. Yes, late in life, he did work quite a lot as an architectural draftsman because he has that uh, absolute precision of observation. He can get it all right, so he's doing... Um, the day he died. He was working on elevations and plans and uh, for architects there was another source of income. So Gill was in fact a jack of many trades. He was doing all these things. But I think it's a very, very important uh, point to make that Gill did get better as an artist as he got older. So there's hope for all of you there. (laughs) And
1: But in truth, isn't that always the way, or pretty much the way with most artists?
2: Uh, No, quite a lot of romantic artists burn out. In other words, say, gosh, uh, uh, Sir Sid used to say that. Um, I did my best work when I was in my 20s. And I'd do anything to be able to um, repeat that. Now, when you look, for example, Collins Street um, picture um, that he has, it's actually dated July eighteen eighty three months before um, his death. You
1: think he did some of his best work in that last year? Oh, absolutely. In the last five years of his
2: life. So uh, the technique is so sophisticated. Um, The subtlety of what he's saying is there. So he was an artist who actually developed... He died at the age of 62...
1: Sasha, he died as we started this discussion um, with you explaining, your father telling you he died as a pauper on the steps of the GPO. I read that he was also covered in filth and vermin at the time and he lay um, unidentified for some time as well and ended up in a pauper's grave. Now, how could a man who was so talented, clearly talented, who had so many different audiences, who worked incredibly hard in, at a frenetic pace, how could he end up a
2: pauper? He was a poor business manager. Um, I don't know. I mean, one of the classical myths about Gill is that he was a hopeless alcoholic, who couldn't hold a brush in the final years of his life, uh, and essentially, people, friends, supported him. Just to get him through the last years of his life. Now that's not true. Uh, first bit of evidence is that some of his best works produced in the last year of his life, so he certainly could hold a brush. And dare I say, there's also empirical evidence, like his. Um, after his death, there was a coronial inquiry, obviously, because he died um, unknown, and uh, they did actually look at his liver and things, and it was in perfectly reasonable state. He may have drunk too much. But most artists do, and most people do. Um, But he certainly didn't die as a hopeless alcoholic. But again... um He died of a a heart condition, though. He he? died of a ruptured aorta, yeah. Yeah. Uh, He was 62. Mm. His um, father died uh, even younger, and his mother died when she was 54, I think, Mm -hmm. something like that. So it really um, is part of the family line. It was not that unusual. Um, But for some reason, after he died, there was a deliberate attempt to vilify him. To write him off in this sort of romantic myth, uh, yes, he did his wonderful work on the goldfields, for which we remember him, and then later he just really went to pot. Now, I think in some ways we are a little bit uncomfortable with that sort of um, social conscience pricking work that he did in the last, say, 20 years of his life. This is the sort of stuff that he was pointing out to us that perhaps we should treat the indigenous people um, as equals. Perhaps there's nothing wrong with people being Asians. Perhaps women are part of our society. They're not outside our society. Uh, Perhaps we should stop screwing up the environment. It's not the way forward. I mean, all of these issues are very, very clearly spelt out uh, in Gill's work. They were not popular issues, And um, society, and particularly art history, does practice selective amnesia. But uh,
1: nevertheless, it's taken 135 years. Is that right? To finally have a a retrospective of his work, um, which does now give us a holistic. Uh, picture mm-hmm. of Gill and his life and his talent, yeah. w- thanks yeah. to you. And um, although you say you're divorcing him, I yeah. really don't believe <laughs> it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> now I mean, listen. I, I think I think the people have the wrong impression that I'm sort of batting for Gill, uh, trying to put him into a hierarchy, of saying, "Well, this is the greatest colonial artist." Absolute nonsense. No intention of doing that. But I think he needs to be brought into the equation.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: He was a voice, and an important voice, and when you consider the 19th century, when you consider the von Gerards, the Nicolas Chevaliers, the Louis Bouvelot's, um, Struts, let's also consider S.T. Gill as one of these artists. Because he was saying something that none of the others were. And I think that's quite important. And that's really the, p- the purpose of the exercise, is to get Gill back into circulation. Uh, increase the awareness of Gill. To say, well, here's listen, He's saying something that's important for all of us. Um, perhaps we should have a second look at him.
1: I know some of you will have questions for Sasha, so please pop your hand up if you do. And the mi- we've got microphones to both sides. Hands up. We've got one over here. Did I see another, an, another one over here? Do we have any other questions over here, just to balance it out? Uh, so just pop your hand up as soon as you've got a question and a microphone will float your way. And just while we're waiting, m- and make sure you do speak into it because we are recording today's discussion. Just very briefly, we haven't touched on really his love of dogs. There are more dogs in his work than there are women, which is a whole other issue. But I got the impression, as a dog lover myself, I got the impression that he understands the nature of dogs extremely well.
2: Well, Gil, all his life had dogs. Uh, Back in England, from the little juvenile sketchbook we have, he's with his English dogs. When he came to South Australia, he... One of the first things, he he got himself a dog. And uh, right through to the end, he always had his dogs with him. So he was a dog owner, a dog lover. Uh, But he also used to incorporate his dogs into compositions and use the dogs as a sort of a canine commentary on human activities. You may remember, say, the Rakes Progress of Hogarth, where a cat would cover up uh, his face with his paws, say, oh, God, you can't do that. <laughs> How embarrassing. Um, Gil has his dogs commenting on human behaviour throughout. So he was one of our great canine artists and one of the great equine artists. Now, it sounds a bit core and silly now, but for the Victorian era, it wasn't. These were very high art forms.
1: I was fascinated to hear you say, uh, when you and I looked at the exhibition, when we were looking at um, the Collins Street Block, mm-hmm. which... I urge you, if you haven't seen it, go and have a look at it. It's only a small piece. But if you look very closely, and it's got a lot of women in it, which is unusual, but look very closely, um, Sasha, your take on... It's a commentary on human behaviour, on class, but there's something very specific going on in the foreground. Doing
2: the block is basically between Elizabeth Street and Swanson Street, uh, on Collins Street, and this is the fashionable place for promenading. And I um, was very criticised for it. And Gil shows these really dressed-up women walking up and down and these blokes eating them up with their gaze. And right in the front are two dogs sniffing one another.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is what I mean, using a canine com- commentary. Say, well,
1: Sets it all, really, doesn't it? Yeah. OK, our first question over here. Thank uh, you. Thank,
2: thanks very much. Um, uh, Neville Blakely. Uh, when I came into my wife's family about 55 years ago, and as you know that she's related to the Gills, there were three stories I was told. The first you dealt with was the GPO, steps of the GPO. The second one was that he was a drunk. You've dealt with that. The third one I'd like your comments on, that the raven-haired beauty uh, who he eloped with, Elizabeth, Mrs Gill on SS London to Ipswich, after after he became moneyed from his father's inheritance, that's a story all all of its own, that she was Lola Montez's pianist? That went uh, around the family for quite some while. (laughs) Do you know whether that... Have you ever found any any evidence of that? I don't think there is any evidence of that. Um, But just stepping a little bit back, uh, when the Reverend Samuel Gill died... Uh, virtually all the money was used to pay off the family debts. So not very much money came with it. And yes, Gil did leave the goldfields, fields, went back to Adelaide for a month, settled those things. Um, I won't go through family histories because they're rather um, bad. Uh, well, it's a complicated thing because if, if you're interested in, in Gil genealogy, yes, we can go through it. But uh, Gil's father remarried and um, the new wife Certainly had a falling out with the brothers John Ryland Gill and um, Samuel Thomas Gill, and but but there was no money a- as far as it being Lola's uh, pianist, no, I, I don't think there's any evidence for that either. I mean, th- yes, I can see where the theory comes from because Gill knew them from the gold fields, uh, but um, I, I haven't been able to track Elizabeth. But a a never, never let facts stand in the... <laughs> <laughs> what
1: a fantastic family history, though. Fascinating. We have another one up here, and another microphone is currently held by someone. Just stand up, if you can, so we can see. Do we have another, mic- uh, another question over here? Can you grab the microphone?
2: OK, I'll go first. Sasha, as you're aware, the National Library of Australia has put on some very good exhibitions over the years. I also like the Strutt exhibition. It strikes me that Strutt was only here for a short time in Australia, but with a handful of um, oil paintings, he has established himself well into the Australian art tradition or art history. Do you think that if Gill had painted in oils, if Gill had painted portraits or homesteads, if Gill had painted uh, the goldfields of Australia, like Von Gerard did, he would have had a better reputation. Oh, sorry, no, I won't say a better reputation, but a much more, a bigger reputation in Australian art history. And there isn't... Why did he double in oils? Hmm. Yes, I think the short answer is yes. Uh, The longer answer is, um, Gill came from a completely different tradition of art. I mean, basically, when you think of Strutt, Strutt is an academic artist whether he's a good academic artist or a mediocre one, that's a a separate question. But Strutt is an academic artist. Uh, He probably was the best academic artist of the time working in Australia, and he certainly uh, painted a number of very, very important works uh, for our history, which, of course, at the time were not recognised. Strutt couldn't make a living here in Australia. Strutt did go back to England and did the Australian paintings in England, and he couldn't flog them. Uh, so, yes, um, they're two totally different traditions, um, but it also took Strutt quite a long time for him to be, if you like, rehabilitated and moved into Australian art. What Gill should have done was being like Louis Bouvelot, painted these glowing, romantic images of the bushscape. Uh, on the fringes of Melbourne, and that's a formula to success. (laughs) Um, But Gill did experiment with oils, we know of that. Uh, He experimented with oils probably in about 1858 in Sydney, and it didn't suit his uh, temperament, didn't suit what he was trying to do, and he abandoned it. But uh, I think the, the overriding point is very important, is that the history of Australian art traditionally is written in terms of easel paintings. Oil paintings uh, Gill does not belong to that history. He is essentially a works on paper person. he works in democratic multiples. McGill's um, um, work even today is relatively inexpensive. Um, not knowing everyone intimately in this audience, but I think most of you would be able to afford a Gill. You can buy a very good original Gill for $200 today
1: oh, look, we've got some buyers already. No,
2: um, <laughs> mind you, if you want to have a nice panoramic view of Sydney, uh, mm. watercolour, that mm. may set you back a couple hundred thousand. Mm. But, but in, in terms of very nice uh, lithographs, even chromolithographs, um, yes. Mm.
1: It's a very interesting question, though, because it does sort of come back to Gill's own motivations and drive. And whilst y- y- you've outlined today a number of uh, career-ending decisions he made yep. or moves he made. He probably could have made his life a lot more comfortable had he chosen to, but his real motivation and drive seems to come back to that, that mm. realism, that fascination with, with society yep. and, uh, and, and culture and what was really yep. going yep. on, yep. Um, which doesn't necessarily sell, as you've said.
2: Gill mean, you basically wasn't uh, out to make a comfortable living. Mm. That wasn't his primary motivation. Um, he felt the need, he wanted to say something.
1: Okay, we have another question just up the back there. And did I see a hand come up over here?
0: Thank you. Um, thanks. I, I was wondering if you had any observations about Gil's uh, legacy or influence on both later visual artists but perhaps more broadly culturally?
2: Uh, it's a lovely question, it's quite a, but there's a very long answer. Uh, certainly Gill had a huge impact on the imagery or the iconography of the artists of the so-called Heidelberg School. Um, frequently, his shearing scenes and other things, when you track them back, they all go back to Gill. Uh, people were aware of it. Gill was reproduced in newspapers. And also I find it rather fascinating is that uh, Gill was ripped off mercilessly by major European artists, mm. Plagiarised. I mean, um, most of you would know Gustave Doré. Uh, he actually plagiarised Gill. The French don't like that <laughs> being pointed out. But, but I mean, uh, th- the fact remains that um, Gill, amongst artists, certainly had quite a strong influence, and the selected uh, works of Gill uh, are incredibly well known in Australia. I mean, they went in bank calendars. They went into schoolrooms. Th- they were. Illustrated in all of our textbooks. So um, Gil, I think, does actually operate uh, on a number of levels in terms of a heritage and influence. I think probably now in a much post-everything age, uh, we're redisco- rediscovering him uh, from a totally different perspective to say, well, perhaps there is another side to Gil rather than the bloke with these funny-looking characters going in and out of holes in the mm-hmm. gold fields.
1: Mm, that's a great question. Thank you. Do we have another question just floating around there? I Just on that last question I must admit when I looked at the invalid, uh, I think it's the invalid tent yeah. um, there is a moment there that I saw echoes of uh, a, a, a Roberts Plain air painting, the, gar- the artist's camp yeah, yeah. Um, and it hadn't occurred to me that later yeah. artists might have actually been using his work yes. as, uh, as an example and something to study but yeah. You can see it once you start looking. Mm. Sasha, when you said in the introduction to your book that you were rejecting historical objectivism in writing the S. T. Gill and his audience book, I thought, well that's a bold statement. But I'm very, very Mm. grateful Mm. that you have.
2: I think to be objective is impossible. It just it just doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't mean that you're going to actually cook the facts. I'm not a politician. (laughs) Um, But but what I mean is that you write with a passion because you're interested in something. If you're going to go out and spend a few thousand hours of your time uh, to do something, it's not that you're going to sort of uh, have a bean balance and try to work out uh, these things. Uh, A lot of these things can't be objectively Mm -hmm. defined. And people who claim about objective histories, I think, are just basically practicing self-deception. Uh, so yes, it is a book written with passion. It's a book that tries to um, reintegrate, if you like, Gill into our visual history, and possibly uh, along the way point out a few things that some some people may not be aware of. That's
1: <laughs> Well, without doubt, your work on S.T. Gill has not only revived him and introduced him to Australia again and new audiences, but it is historically critically important, and it's important for all of us, not only from an, uh, an art history perspective, but from a cultural perspective yeah. and an identity perspective. Um, And he raises a number of things that, as you touched on, are very relevant right here today. And the circle of life and the circle of culture and history is extraordinary, isn't it? But uh, I'd like to, to, on behalf of the library and the audience here, to thank you very much for the work that you have done and the dedication and hours you've put into this. And whilst you say divorcing S.T. Gill, I bet that's not the case, I just want to finish by asking you, do you feel like you have a personal connection to him, given the time and uh, thought you've put into his life?
2: Yes, and I don't think he likes me. <laughs> 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 no, no, go I cause, uh, doubt there's that. There's so many times that, that I'd be s- uh, sitting uh, in front of a computer with a Gill image on the screen... You know, with your GNT or something, and you're pondering mm-hmm. it. There's one particular one called uh, the Great uh, Locomotive Race, um, and it's a striking image. And Gill proceeds to write: it's uh, English locomotive, I think, Snorter versus American locomotive called So and um, So, five hundred thousand uh, dollars aside or something like that. And you read all that, and, say and all the clues are given here and there's a, a, obviously a Yankee capitalist sitting in the foreground reading a newspaper of the, the Herald Times. Uh, we know the date. Uh, that's also provided. It's, it's the 4th of July, 1880. You see, I can remember that. Mm-hmm. And just the number of hours I spent checking out th- copies of the, that newspaper, <laughs> uh, emailing friends in the States to say, are, are you aware of any locomotive races, and so mm-hmm. on. All of that... And it's just at the last moment, you said, oh, God. Locomotive is, is a red herring. The key word is race.
0: <laughs>
2: and and what you have is actually the Yankee capitalist sitting there and there's an Afro-American waiter on the other side. Oh, and when you look oh. behind him, he has got slave lot auctions. Oh. That's what the was So, um, so, so, so Gill quite frequently, I think, is just looking after me saying... No, that took you a long time, didn't it, matey? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you've continued to crack, to, to crack all those riddles, and I suspect you will keep doing it for years and years, looking oh. further and <laughs> deeper into the work to find uh, any other riddles that you haven't quite cracked. Ladies and gentlemen, on that note, please thank, uh, with great, uh, great applause, Sasha Grishin. Thank you. Thank you, Virginia.